This Thanksgiving Day morning, we want to consider the 147th Psalm. So we'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars and He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds and He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor His pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out His command to the earth and His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His word and melts them. He makes His wind blow and the waters flow. He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. Dear congregation, three times in this psalm, the psalmist calls us to praise the Lord. In verse 1, praise the Lord. In verse 7, sing praise to the Lord with thanksgiving. And verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And the praise to which he calls us is not a generic singing or impartial worship, but really the center of this psalm is verses 7 through 11. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. That is, God's people are to consider God's works. They are to consider God's ways. They are to consider His Word and then sing thanksgiving to God. Of course, I'm aware that this is Thanksgiving Day for some of us. For visitors here, I'm Canadian, so that was a month ago. Uh, But this is Thanksgiving Day in this country. And this Thanksgiving Day, men and women, boys and girls alike, will express thanks for the gifts that they have received. But I want to ask a question this morning for each and every one of us who are here. What does thanksgiving mean? Of course, it's a combination of the words give and thanks. But to whom are we giving thanks? Is 
being thankful something generic, an attitude that we throw into the air. As some say, an attitude of gratitude. Are we thanking the universe? This world? Our parents? Maybe some people thank themselves. Who are we thankful to? I think our society, when thinking about Thanksgiving now, seems to indicate that being thankful, giving thanks, is actually having a um, grateful spirit for the gifts you have received. It's an attitude. But the way Christians have understood it is not this way. Thanksgiving is not just an attitude but it's actually an action. As one of my professors ably put it, to be thankful presupposes someone or something as the source of your gratitude. It's something we do. It's something we give. And verse 1 says, you should give your thanks. Excuse me, verse 7 says, you should give your thanks to the Lord. That is our praise, our worship, our thankfulness, that which the gifts that we have in expressing thanks, we should be thanking first and foremost God for these gifts. The psalmist is not content that God's people would be simply generically grateful for their gifts. The psalmist is not prescribing for you and I having an attitude of gratitude. Although it's good to be grateful. Here in this psalm, the psalmist says we should actually worship God in thankfulness for the gifts that He has given us. His works, His ways, and His Word. This brings delight to God. And so congregation, I want to show you three things from this psalm. The psalmist tells us that we should give God thankful praise for His great works. We should give thankful praise for God's good and gracious ways. And we should give thankful praise for God's saving words. That's thankful praise for God's great works, God's good and gracious ways, and His saving word. And this delights God. Notice that the psalm, if you have your Bible open, in Psalm 147, it doesn't have a title at the top of this psalm which means that its context is not readily apparent for us, but if we jump down to verse 2, we get some clues. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts, or some Bible translations, maybe if you brought your own, says He gathers the exiles of Israel, which has led some Bible commentators, some pastors, including myself, to think that this psalm is probably written after the Babylonian exile. Possibly even during the ministries and the times of Nehemiah, Ezra, or even the prophet Haggai. This is the context, I think, of this psalm. is actually post-exile, returning from Babylon to Israel. And you need to remember that they would have returned to a city with broken down houses, 
to a temple that had been destroyed, not one single brick laying on top of one another, and a land that would have been savaged. It would have been a very discouraging sight. But yet the psalmist still says in verse 1, it is good to sing praise to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. This is quite the contrast. You need to imagine with your mind's eye the context in which this is happening. Ruined Jerusalem. Devastation. No hope for the nation. And the psalmist, in a sense, is standing in a broken temple saying, it is still good to praise God. It is still pleasant. It is still fitting. I imagine that some people might have been annoyed with the psalmist. Don't you see this temple? Don't you see this city in which we dwell? How can you say it's good to praise the Lord in this, amidst this devastation? And it's as if the psalmist says in verses 2-6, through six, I can still praise the Lord because my God does great things. Congregation, our God does great things. Amen? God does great things. And the first thing the psalmist reflects on here, the great thing that God is, is that God is for His people. Can we not give thanks today, Thanksgiving Day 2022, that God has not abandoned His covenant people even now? God is for His people. His promise is still true that He will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise belonged to the exiles coming out of Babylon. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Notice in verse 1, the capital letters in your ESV Bible, L-O-R-D in capitals, meaning the Hebrew word used there is His covenant name, Yahweh. He is faithful to His covenant. He is faithful to His people. And He is faithful to bring them out of Babylon and still be in Jerusalem. If you flip back just a few chapters to Psalm 126, you actually see the context here of their returning Verses 1-3, through when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when they returned to Jerusalem, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, listen to this, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. God's people were still able to be glad amidst the rubble of a broken down city because God was with them. God was for them. Even though they were starting from zero, even though they had nothing, they were actually rich, their hearts were overflowing because God was in their midst. He was with them. He had not abandoned them, nor forsaken them. And what's so remarkable about this God, the God that we serve, the ancient God of the Jews, 
is that yes, He cares for Jerusalem. And yes, even today, He cares for the kingdom of God. But not at the expense of the individual. God is not a mega pastor looking to build a big church without care for the individual person. Look what it says in verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted. And He binds up their wounds. He ministers to the person individually by His Holy Spirit. And He binds up their wounds. Which is a reference maybe to a doctor who's always on call to care for the needs of His people. God does not forget the individual who's crushed in spirit. He does not forget the individual who is wounded. But He is always on call, always there to take care of every one of their needs. It's interesting that the psalmist here is actually quoting Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news and to bind up the brokenhearted. Which Jesus Himself in Luke chapter 4 sat in the synagogue, read that portion of Isaiah 61, and do you remember what He says? Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Christ says, the one who binds up the brokenhearted, the one who cares for the wounds of His people is Me. I am the one who cares for the people. I am the one who when you feel forsaken, who when you see the broken down city and you need God's comfort, I am the one in your midst. I am, in a sense, the doctor who comes to those who are hurting and heals their wounds. Likewise today, congregation, there are many people who feel like their lives are an impoverished Jerusalem. You feel like our religion is like the temple, empty and broken. Our families are like their homes, falling apart with no walls to protect us from attacks. You may not feel this Thanksgiving Day that you can be thankful for much, but yet we can still offer thankful praise because God has given us the greatest of treasures, His presence, the Lord Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit. God had not forsaken His people. The psalmist goes on and begins to reflect on God's Creator, God as Creator. In this psalm, what makes it so challenging is that we see what I'm going to call telescoping action. The psalmist will go from something very broad, like the whole city of Jerusalem, and then he will narrow in on someone with a broken heart. See this broad to small, broad to small. And again in verse 4, the psalmist zooms out, if you will, Zooms out actually to the whole of space. The stars in the sky. Looking up into space, he reflects on God as the Creator. Now why does he talk about the stars? It's interesting, the Bible actually mentions stars quite often. 
The interesting thing about the stars is that until about 1584, humans had not really even discovered that the sun was essentially another star. Or in 1610, uh, Galileo uh, suggested that it's possible that the the earth orbits around the sun. Uh, The psalmist, to the psalmist, the stars would have been the epitome of what you don't know. To the ancient world, the stars are high above us. They're mysterious. So much so that some people even worshipped the sun, the stars, as gods. Again, they would have been the epitome of what the ancient people did not know. We didn't know what they were. But we knew that they were there. But in verse 4, the psalmist says, I don't know what the stars are, but God does. He determines the number of the stars, and He gives to them all their names. He determines, meaning He's the Creator. He gives to them their names, meaning He is the owner of those stars. And the idea here is simply this. If God can care for the stars, to name them and to know every one of their needs, how much more so will He care for the needs of His people? A word of application here. If God forgets nothing, the stars that we haven't even discovered yet, do you really think that God can forget you and your needs? Little children, on a clear night, look up into the sky, and I challenge you to try to count how many stars are there. That's a trick question. It can't be done. We are still in the process of discovering new stars and new galaxies of stars. Yet the psalmist says, when I look up into the stars, I know that God named each and every one of them. He created each and every one of them. There is nothing outside of His infinite understanding. And for the whole congregation, He knows your name as well. He knows your needs. There's nothing that you need that escapes His grasp. We can be thankful this morning that God, for God's great works, that He is for His people and that He is king over this creation. We want to move on to our second point we see in verses 7 through 8 that God is good and gracious in His ways. Again, the people are called to praise the Lord, but this time the command changes in its form. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody on the lyre. The Hebrew word here for sing, anach, literally means Respond. Answer. You're going to see God's wonderful works, see God's wonderful ways, and you should respond. You should answer with thanksgiving. If the first six verses deal with God's greatness, verses 7 through 11 deal with his goodness and his grace. Look at God's goodness in verses 7 and 8. Or, excuse me. 8 and 9. 
He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. We are able to say in the church, God is good, right? When I was a kid uh, growing up in the Free Methodist Church of Canada, the pastor would often say, uh, God is good. And then the people would say, all the time. We're able to confess that. But my question for you is, how far does God's goodness extend? Is He good to every person? Is He good to everything? The psalmist says, God's goodness extends unto the ends of the earth. As far as east is from the west, as far as north is from the south, God is good to all. Even something as simple as a cloud, God has appointed it for your good. As I was writing this sermon earlier this week, I met thinking about the clouds. I look out, out the window and there's three cr- clouds listlessly sailing by. The psalmist says that is appointed for the good of creation. You see, the thing is that we would say a cloud is quite meaningless in the grand scheme of things, but yet it's still there by God's hand. From that cloud, He sends forth rain. Yes, even snow. And it falls by His decree, which waters the earth, says verse 7. And then when it waters the earth, He makes grass to grow. Verse 7, which feeds the beasts. And then the idea here, even though it's a little bit morbid, is that when the beast dies, he gives that beast to the raven for its food. The psalmist is reflecting on how things work in God's world. These things don't happen by chance. They don't happen randomly. He is the one who feeds the earth with rain. He is the one who feeds the beast with grass. And He is the one who feeds the raven with the beast. An important biblical principle is that even though we may not see the hand of God, He is the one who is establishing all things. In philosophy, if some of you have ever taken philosophy, He is the first cause who establishes all secondary causes. And He does this, says the psalmist, because He is good to all. Notice with me also, verses 7-8, through the rugged description of these uh, different things God provides for. Grass on the hills, the word is mountain, grass on the mountain, where man doesn't care for it. Wild beasts, not domesticated animals. The cry of the raven referring to the wilderness. The psalmist is actually reflecting on that which man doesn't care for. Man can't care for every blade of grass. We can't care for every animal. We can't care for every bird. But God cares for them. Even when we're not looking. 
God is motivated by his goodness to care for all of his creation. This is the idea the psalmist is trying to pound into our heads. If God can care for the stars, if God can care for the grass and the animals and the clouds and the birds, he can care for you. He can care for his exiles whom he gathers in Jerusalem. But this is the center of the psalm, verses 10 through 11. And I want you to notice here God's goodness, yes, but also his grace. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Let's admit it, congregation. We delight in physical strength. How many of us are going to watch the Lions game this afternoon? Well, there's not much physical strength on the Lions, but you know what I mean. We delight in physical strength. Israel would have loved to have more war horses, a large army of strong men. But God delights in those who trust His grace. God is not impressed with strength and armies and war horses and the legs of men. He trusts, He delights in those who trust in His grace. Again, we see this telescoping action from the broadness of the sky, the broadness of all of creation. Now He narrows in on His people. God delights in His people. God's people are described, listen to this, Deuteronomy 32.10, as the apple of His eye. God's people, Ephesians 5, are His bride. All throughout the Bible, innumerably, God's people are described as His children. He delights and his people who trust in his grace. Delight literally means to give pleasure. Listen to this. Tim Keller says, Presbyterian minister, God is given pleasure when human beings trust in his gracious love. Close quote. Allow me to take a moment. I want to apply this to our lives, our specific context. There is a temptation in Reformed circles when we are, of course, people who, you know, canons of door, doctrine of election. We are strong on God's sovereign choice. But then we are also tend to be people who believe that His love for us, His delight in us, is dependent on how we perform as Christian people. It goes like this. God has elected me, yes, I'm sure. But I know He doesn't love me because I struggle with sin. God has set His electing love upon me, but He doesn't love me because I failed as a parent. I haven't succeeded as a husband and a wife. I haven't whatever it is, fill in the blank. But notice what this passage says. It doesn't say that God's delight is in those who are perfect in this life. 
It doesn't say that those he delights in those who are without sin. He delights in those who fear him and hope in him, those who are cut to the heart for their sins, but who nonetheless trust in his redeeming love in Jesus Christ. The Lord delights in the saints not because they are perfect in this life, but because Jesus Christ is perfect. And Jesus Christ came and died and gave you His righteousness. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you need to hear this congregation, there is nothing you have done. There is nothing you will do that can separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus the Lord. You are the delight and the pleasure of God. That is what grace is. You don't have grace because you earn God's favor. Grace is unmerited favor. Not because of anything you have done, but freely given. Favor freely given as a gift of grace. God delights in those who trust in His grace. We need to praise God. We need to give thanksgiving to God today for His goodness and especially His grace. Finally, and we move quickly here through our final point, we want to thank, give God thankful praise for the blessing of His Word. Thankful praise for God's saving Word. I don't want to go through each verse here. I just want to look at verse 12 and then 19 and 20. Since the psalmist is going to reflect on many of the same things. But the central idea here is that we should continue to praise God for His saving Word. You know, I, I would imagine if uh, the president or the king was to write you a letter, you might treasure it forever. God, who is the creator of the universe, has given you this whole book. He's given us a whole book as to how we are to live as His covenant people. It's not a book of do's and don'ts. It's not a book of rules and regulations. If I was to define this book in one sentence, it's a love story about how God has so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for that world. And to those who do not know Him, this is just black ink on white paper. But to those who love God, this book is alive. The writer of Hebrews gets at this idea, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it judges the thoughts and, and the attitudes of the heart. Through this book, through God's Word, He converts, He changes, He renews. And we actually get a beautiful picture of that in verses 16 through 18. You're given the picture of melting snow, which should connect with all of us Michiganders these last few days. 
But notice how the snow melts, it says in verse 18. He sends out His Word and melts them. He makes His wind blow, and then as the snow melts, the waters flow. I wonder if the psalmist, when he's writing about verses 16 and 18, is actually picturing the human heart. The human heart as it's cold to God like snow, but by God's Word begins to soften, begins to thaw, become warm, and then alive by God's Word. Just as they did on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. As Jesus opened the Word and taught them, they say to one another after He disappears, surely this was the Christ, for were our hearts not inflamed when He spoke to us? The conversion, the bringing of new life through the Word is not done by ink and paper, but by the message of the Bible. The message of Jesus Christ. He is the one whom this Bible is about. That when a heart encounters the message of God's grace and the cross of Christ, this is when our hearts are warmed to Him. And when we speak about God's love, we're not talking about an ooey, gooey, romantic love. But God's love is a sacrificial love. A love so strong that He would give His one and only Son to die for our sakes. This is what's recorded in the Word. This is what the Bible is about. And He has been gracious to us to give us this Word and the grace to believe. Frankly, congregation, if we did not have this book, this church wouldn't be here. If we did not have this book, you and I would not know of Jesus Christ. We would not know of His sacrificial love and His grace for us. It is by this book that God has saved generations and generations of believers. Should we not give thanks also for His revealed saving Word? You see, this book... Some people say, why couldn't God give us a movie or a play? But the Word of God is actually a provision. It's a provision for us and our fallenness. We would never have known God by nature, by a movie, by a play. But He gave us a book for our salvation. Read it, congregation. Meditate on it often. It is good and fitting to praise God for His Word. So let's conclude this morning. The psalmist calls us to give thankful praise. To praise God for His works, His ways, and His words. Even in the rubble of a torn down city, God has still done great things for us. Some of us here may feel like our lives have been torn down. That we've had many struggles in this last year, since last Thanksgiving. But God has done great things for us. 
He's given us this world. He's been good. He's given us His grace. And He's given us the message of Christ. He's given us the message of the cross in His Word. Oh, you may not be able to be thankful for that broken down car, the leaky furnace, or whatever else it might be. But in Christ, God has done great things for us. Let us render to Him thankful praise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks this morning for Your many gifts unto us. You have given us many great things that even though, Lord, there are many challenges that we may face in this life like the Jews did of old, yet, Heavenly Father, You have given them good things and You have given us good things. We thank You for them. But we especially thank You for the Word of salvation and the cross of Jesus Christ handed down through the ages. We pray, Heavenly Father, that that would be our principal offering of thanks. Thank You, Lord, for the cross. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.